0: You have to operationalize it in a way that fits with things that spark their energy, things that they're excited about. Really, like any culture change effort, you're going to find these people who've been just quietly innovating, finding ways to hack the system.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to civic and service designer, Sarah Brooks. Sarah is currently serving as a design executive and IBM Distinguished Designer She has also been a U.S. Presidential Innovation Fellow under President Obama. Following that, she was the first Chief Design Officer appointed at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. With a background in life-centered, entrepreneurial, and intrapreneurial design practices, and the ability to pioneer transformational change, she works at the intersection of research, social impact, and regenerative futures. And just a quick listener note. While her story is ultimately very uplifting and empowering, it does include mention of a tragedy involving sexual violence and homicide. We don't go into details, but I did want to give you a heads up. And as you'll hear, her journey through profound grief following the tragedy is poetically intertwined with her career path and design practice, and has informed how she shows up fully present with all of her humanity to do the work of creating a world that works for everyone here's Sarah. My name is
0: Sarah Brooks. I'm based at the easternmost edge of Long Island in Montauk. It's a small town. It's very close to the ocean. It's, It's really quiet. It's peaceful. And I've been privileged to be able to work remotely. I'm a service designer and civic designer and an advocate for design decisions and actions that center people and the environment. Currently, I'm an IBM Distinguished Designer, so I'm leading a mission to support product and service teams across IBM business units in delivering excellent experiences through a system of tools and practices. Prior to IBM, I served in the Obama administration at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs as the chief design officer, and I worked to improve veterans' access to services following a year-long White House Presidential Innovation Fellowship. So I've worked as a designer for a long time, since graduating art school in the late 90s, and have forged a path to work that I really love. You should celebrate yourself every day.
2: slash acast.
1: I am very excited to pick that all apart and learn about all of it. But before we get there to what you're doing now, I always like to go all the way back to the formative years because I feel like it really sets the stage for the human that you are now. So will you paint the picture of your childhood for me?
0: <laughs> sure. I was a Manhattan kid. I was born in the city and uh, lived in a little apartment on the Upper East Side. My mom was an actress and later she became a producer. And then much later she became an executive coach. And my dad was a doctor. They both really loved their work. They were super engaged in their professions. And outside of that, they had a lot of shared interests. They're very connected through progressive politics and they were both avid readers. They came from kind of different cultural backgrounds. My mom was raised in California. Her parents had moved before she was born. They came from Missouri where they grew up. And then my dad's parents fled the pogroms in Ukraine. They made their way to America and they settled in New York. So my mom moved to New York to start her acting career where she met my dad they had me. And then two years later, they had my sister, Melissa. So we stayed in the city in Manhattan till I was six. And then we moved out to Chappaqua. It's about an hour north of the city.
1: It sounds very glamorous, the daughter (laughs) of a doctor and an actress, and they're very progressive. I'm imagining the kind of a cosmopolitan intellectual socialite situation.
0: I do feel... Very privileged to have had a lot of interestingness in my family life. I think that's right. You know, they were both social and they did love to gather people in our home. There was a lot of creative culture in the house. They're both very curious learners. I think that all happened amidst this feeling of a very free-range childhood. You know, we lived in this neighborhood that had all these kids and we would just play together in this network of woods and streams connected by all these different families' homes, right? And we just, we made forts and we ice skated and it was like very wholesome, you know? And then there was that home life of my parents bringing us into their world and really treating us like little humans. Even when we were kids, they were very inclusive, It really encouraged both my sister and I to explore our imagination and gave us really a huge gift of encouragement to pursue our interests without pushing any particular agenda. And so what were those interests? What were you gravitating towards? I think I was a dreamy kid, and I was always really curious about everything. I loved stories about like pixies and magical beings and flower fairies. And I think it was maybe spending all that time outside too. I really felt a sense of that aliveness in nature, particularly bonded with trees. It's funny because I still feel most grounded when I'm in the woods. I read like crazy. I drew, I painted, I did ceramics, I made little beaded jewelry. I meticulously decorated my dollhouse you know, I was just kind of into it all, you know, all the materials, all the
1: things just I didn't feel the
0: boundaries around those things or that there were.
1: Okay, I just went there with you for a minute. We're in the woods together. We're making a fort. We've got dollhouses in there. And we're totally arguing over the color scheme. But we love it.
0: (laughs) Exactly.
1: (laughs) Like, how do you get the wallpaper to not buckle around those windows and door frames? That's tough. It requires some skills. So what did you mature into in the adolescent years? When you moved to Chappaqua, did you still have access to the city? Were you still a Manhattan kid for most of your life? Yeah, I think I was. There was a lot of spanning between both of
0: those worlds. So really kind of living in that that outdoors world and then heading back into the city. My mom and dad brought us in for a lot of theater. When my mom was in a show, we were there and or we were seeing her friends in theater. What was it like to see your mom perform? Well, the first time I went to see her perform, it was a learning moment for my parents. I think I went with my dad to a rehearsal that my mom was having when I was about 4 and she was playing a role where she was this beleaguered divorcee, like going to the bank to try and get a loan and they wouldn't give it to her. And apparently I was sitting and I was sitting and I was sitting and watching it at some point. I just burst out and said, stop being mean to my mommy. And (laughs) I just couldn't take it anymore. I don't think I understood. (laughs) Then they explained the process to me. So it got to the point where later I loved it. I think theater is really magical and wonderful. And I was always really proud of my mom for being an actor. I thought it was a very
1: brave thing to do. It is a very brave thing. I'm glad that that was the vibe that you were picking up on her bravery as well as her talent. And I'm glad that you protected her from that bad banker. <laughs> <laughs> I think I did my part. So in adolescence, you're still enjoying the best of the city and the best of outdoors and what kind of young adult are you maturing into? And how are you expressing yourself creatively?
0: You know, my parents were also really super grounded in a work ethic. You know, I started working pretty young, I actually started helping a neighbor organize a mail order business she had when I was in junior high school. And then in high school, I worked at like the proverbial, terrible ice cream and burger joint in town. I was working and that was, I guess, helping me develop some discipline. (laughs) But, you know, I think angsty and awkward, a very appropriate Terms for how I felt most of my adolescence. I definitely went through a rough time and you know, I experienced a lot of exclusion in my school. Some of it came from other people and some of it came from my own internalized sense of what I thought about that culture. You know, it was very clicky and I felt like a lot of the kids were cruel. Newsflash kids are cruel new to nobody, but (laughs) like we all know this, but I was so sensitive and it really got to me and I really couldn't stand those clicks. So all of this, it kind of coincided with me bumping into the world of punk rock and the downtown art scene in New York City and the gay culture in New York City. So I started hanging out in downtown, which was way more fun than like the
1: keg parties that were happening in the woods in Chappaqua. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. We know now as adults that kids are cruel. It's still new when you're a kid yourself. I experienced some exclusion myself. I still was like so disappointed. I just didn't understand how people would want to exclude other people. It just didn't make sense to me. So I'm sensitive too, and I, I appreciate where you're coming from. And it's probably what drove me to the punk rock scene as well. Honestly, I felt really accepted there. I'm excited that you found it. Was that your tribe? Did you feel like angry with the world or, or rebellious? Or <laughs> did you just feel like this is creatively free, and really resourceful? And it's more my people than the keg party people? Yeah, like
0: I understand what you're saying though about just not understanding it. I think that was my fundamental challenge too. Like I just did not understand like why it just doesn't seem right. of yeah, exclusion. Like,
1: right. Yeah, I'm just like you like these people in certain contexts but in other contexts you don't? Exactly.
0: Like this moral relativism. It was re- yeah.
1: it was very <laughs> dodgy.
0: I think I did feel that I'd found my tribe in punk rock and I think it was a lot of those Things that at the time, it's funny that I would say I was very values aligned with its expression. Yes, it was about creative freedom, also about DIY. Oh, you don't like the way these pants look? That's cool. You know, you just like take out this seam, you do that, you put some safety pins here, like cut the sleeves off your t shirt. You know, it just felt like there was a lot of making energy in the expression of all of it with the clothes and with the music and with the art. And it's like, all the layers, I think, had that very baked in.
1: Yes, and the entrepreneurialism too. Like, you don't want us at your venue? Fine, we'll book this other warehouse, or we'll make our own flyers, and we don't need to be on your record label. We'll do, we'll record it ourselves. Like the DIY ethos it was so enchanting to me because it was complete creative freedom. F the rules. There are no rules. Like, and there was also a raw honesty, like emotional honesty that I really resonated with.
0: Oh, I wish we had met each other during that time. That would have been really fun. <laughs> At an Iggy show?
1: Yes. <laughs> At Maxwell's or like CBGB's or... <laughs> yeah, my club or...
0: Yeah, I mean, there was so much great music going on then and that and that part was so joyous too so fun
1: i'm guessing your parents being as progressive as they were like they probably weren't frightened of your punk rock self
0: interestingly they weren't i think my dad was a little more freaked out i think my mother probably there were probably a lot of discussions that i was not part of you know she was like talking him off the ledge (laughs) (laughs) you know he was like why is my daughter getting a mohawk i'm i'm unclear Yeah, I think there was a lot of trust, you know, and I was like, also, when I was home, I think I was relating with them and connected enough. And there was enough of that trusted relationship and communication that it went a long way toward them being willing to let me at 16, get on a train and just do whatever I was going to do in New York with my best friend, Jennifer. And, you know, I always came home.
1: I mean, how did this inform your life choices moving forward?
0: Yeah, you know, I was also doing a lot of theater at that time, a lot of performance myself, a singing, musical theater geek, and theater, I think, obviously influenced by my mom and the fact that that just felt very natural. And I was also really developing a love of film. And so I felt as if I wanted to do something in that realm. And so I actually applied early decision to college at Denison, which is a small liberal arts college in Ohio. But they had a great theater program. And I went to rural Ohio for a year. Yeah. <laughs> it was...
1: <laughs> this sounds like a mistake.
0: <laughs> you, can, you can see where this is going. Okay, yes, on the theater program, that was good. Did a lot of shows, but no, I'm living in rural Ohio. So I transferred to Boston University and that's where we would have reconnected. It would have like, you know, met you at the Rat in Boston. The mm-hmm. Rath
1: yeah. and Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we, we would have seen the Modern Lovers. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> oh,
0: my God. Yeah, Boston was fun. It was fun to live in the middle of a city. And then, you know, you're also surrounded by the, all these other schools and meeting a lot of other people and existing in a city. So I did a double major there. I did English and film. I was able to spend a month in London seeing theater. I did a semester in Paris and gaining some momentum there with my interests. And so then, were you
1: thinking actress, theater, film? Were you thinking producer? Where was this all taking you? I was thinking film director. Because it incorporated
0: all the other arts, like you have lighting, you have the sets, you have the costume, you've got the cinematography. It's like all those things that I'd been very hands-on with as a kid, I felt like Film blended those in a really beautiful way, plus the acting. It just felt like a medium that included all these things that I loved. Except my challenge was I was never interested in the Hollywood film of my moment. I was really interested in European art, house cinema, Japanese, Indian cinema, you know, much more character driven kinds of stories. Still the dreamy nature, perhaps overshadowing uh, what was going to be possible. So I didn't know how that was all going to go together. But yeah, that was my my vision.
1: Well, I mean, I like it. It makes sense. And not being sure how it's going to go together is pretty much everybody at that stage of life, right?
0: Yeah, so true.
1: You seem like you have a brain that likes to figure out systems. And being a director is sort of the galactic overlord of the system of creating a story in all of its dimensions. That kind of makes sense to me. So did you graduate and then start your career in film and television?
0: Yeah, I got to do an internship at WGBH, uh, the public television station in, in Boston. I worked on one show when I was in school. And then the year I graduated, it was like, it was a recession. It was a really hard time to find work. So I'd gone to Albuquerque, New Mexico with my college boyfriend who, that was his hometown. I have just felt drawn to that place, such an extraordinary landscape. It's just beautiful, beautiful, big sky, incredible light, terrible idea from a career perspective to go to New Mexico, but I felt drawn to it, uh, so that's what I did. Did find a job at the one decent production company in town, so I was so excited. you can imagine, right it's like it's yeah. a job I don't know what I'm gonna be doing, like working, helping the guy do all the things like there was one other woman, it was a very small production company, but they were starting to take on you know some a little bit of film work, like feature length film that work that was coming to town, and then they did a lot of commercial work, so I figured, okay, this is like a place where I'm gonna learn chops the fourth week of work my boss put a bouquet of roses on my desk and asked me out to dinner so that was the end of that no such a bummer yes it was so sad i just didn't go back it's like no i i want to work this is what i'm here to do i do not need a date i want a career path
1: yeah that was actually really hard it was really really disappointing and frustrating And if it's the one good production company in town, I'm sure you felt like not only did you lose a job, but you burnt a bridge. Exactly. Because he knew everybody else. And now he's been rejected. Right. That doesn't typically go well for the...
0: Yeah, it did suck. I was like, hmm, I'm in New Mexico, I'm broke, I have no job. <laughs> like, what can I do? I worked like as a horse wrangler, I worked as a waitress, like PS, I was a terrible waitress. I finally, finally, and it was through the underground art scene, because Albuquerque has a pretty interesting underground art scene, I was like starting to meet some people through the other woman in that office. That I left. Uh, She'd been there a long time. So, through her, I met somebody who was working at the public television station there. It was KNME. So, I got another sort of production assistant job basically on the crew. And it was a public affairs show. So, we were shooting on location every week. And then I was a little bit back in the saddle, like, you know, learning how to go on location and. How to wind a cable properly and how to, you know, just kind of observing how that all works and what it means to go shoot on location. So that ended up being pretty interesting. But after the end of a year there and then doing that, I I got a job offer back east um, at a theater. It's called the White Barn Theater. It's a regional equity theater. And the opportunity was to be assistant house manager. So I went back to Connecticut to do that job. And then from there, I started freelancing a little bit as a production assistant in New York City, kind of just started to find my way through that ecosystem.
1: Sorry, I have to ask about the boyfriend. Did you leave him in Albuquerque?
0: or Well, he actually became a really famous comic and podcaster, but he and I broke up at the end of college. So he wasn't even part of the picture when I went to New Mexico After college, I just went. It was just because I'd been there, you know, and as a kid from the East Coast, I hadn't otherwise ever been there or even been to a desert environment that was quite like that. I just got super captivated with it.
2: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right.
1: So, whoa, this is not the web I'm used to. There's something called mouse parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole and things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. I'm up to speed now. Now you're back after the Connecticut house manager job. You're doing freelance in New York City as well.
0: Yeah, I worked a little bit on music video and was, I actually, I've got a full disclosure, the same damn thing happened to me on a set. It's sad because it's obviously still a pattern that continues, right? Of just getting hit on in an unwelcome way, right? So yeah, I was at a really hip and happening production company, The dude who was married to his wife who he had the production company with. Oh my god. Also hit on me after a shoot, so I was like, okay, that's not gonna work either. So it's just trying, you know, just trying to figure out how to move through the world.
1: I found this so frustrating as well because I knew how to politely say no I'm not interested to somebody who was a friend or a stranger. But when it happens in the work setting, you still have to say politely, I'm not interested, but it means that your career opportunities are suddenly detoured, derailed, thwarted in some way. And I don't know if you ended up doing this too, but I would end up doing everything I could to avoid being in that situation, trying to anticipate it, trying to yes, not encourage it on any level, but mm-hmm. overcompensating. And it was just too much. It was a layer of stress that was not relevant to what I wanted to be doing. And it was, I guess, a learning experience, but it was not a welcome one.
0: Yeah, I think that's really well said, right? Because it's just all this emotional labor and navigation and stress. And yeah, it was a bummer. And it's just not right, right? Like, obviously, it's not right.
1: It's still it's always frustrating and disappointing. But at the same time, it's no longer a surprise.
0: Yeah, exactly. There is that there's always the network too right of women who are always talking to one another and kind of trying to point each other in away from the predators if we know them not that you can map that territory fully i definitely felt as if there was some solidarity there about women having each other's back and just learning to navigate but what happened next though was really the thing that stopped me in my tracks which was that my younger sister was murdered in an attempted rape in California where she had been living. Oh, Sarah. Yeah, that happened right as this initial navigation through through these, these workplace waters was happening. I can speak about it now and not to say that it's not beyond the most heartbreaking thing I could have ever imagined, because it it was and it is. And it's been many, many years. And I've done a lot of therapy and emotional work and healing around it to the point where I can just, you know, talk about it with some equanimity. Although I'm always a little bit cautious of just throwing it out there, because I feel like it's a very heavy thing to say. But
1: it is that reality of what happened. Yeah, at that time. Well, I appreciate you sharing that with us. I can imagine it would be hard to talk about your life without sharing that because it's such a big thing that happened. And yet, when you do share it, it's like, okay, you don't know this is coming, but get ready for a wallop. Um, I'm about to tell you something. Obviously, I don't have the same experience, so it's impossible for me to fully empathize with that, but it is enormous. And so... I'm sure it changed your life and continues to change your life. It does. I think about her every day, and mostly
0: it's happy now in terms of like evoking a memory of that's grounded in love and connection, something that was fun or funny because we're just two years apart. So we were, you know, we're always so close. And you're the big sister. Yeah. That was hard. The survivor guilt is really difficult. And I think the post traumatic stress was really, really intense. I mean, that level of grief is extremely dissociative. And I was really far outside of my body for a very long time. And really, because I just couldn't do daily life, I found a great therapist, I began going to therapy twice a week, and I would do two hour sessions. And my therapist was extremely compassionate and she was really skilled at coping with deep grief. She'd been through many of her own traumas. She'd done her own healing work. And and she shared, you know, not overshared, but like had great boundaries, but shared in a way that allowed me to feel as if there was somebody who understood very, very deep grief and had moved through it. That was a major kind of part of how I redefined my job. My job at that moment was like, okay, stay alive because... I have to stay alive for my parents who were so heartbroken. So my question to myself is how do I, how do I do that? Because it was not easy. So therapy was really important. And I had one older friend, you know, I was still living in Westport at this time. She was an actor. My friend Brett Summers who was actually a hilariously funny person. Did you ever see Match Game when you were
1: growing up? I feel like I saw some reruns at some point, but it's, it's not really, wasn't
0: really on my... <laughs> I just say it because, okay, if it wasn't on your radar it wasn't. Um, it was so funny. It was just one of these goofy TV shows with celebrities, but she used to sit next to this guy Charles Nelson Reilly and they would just like laugh it up. He was just like this wonderfully campy guy and she had this deep, deep resonant laugh, so I think a lot of people know her laugh, but she would come <laughs> over to the house. She just got me out for a walk every single day for two years. She would just be like, friend. "Come on, we're going. Yep, we're going out." And we would walk for an hour or two hours because it's just so hard to have casual interaction with people. If someone ever said, "How are you?" I would just like go into a complete panic. You know, life became about me taking care of myself, going to therapy, getting outside with Brett, sticking close to my mom and my dad, and a really small handful of friends cuz you know a lot of people got very scared away. People don't know what to say, so they don't say anything and or they slink away, right? Cuz they're freaked out understandably and I also understand people not knowing what to say. Like there is no right thing ever to say. For deep grief, like as I process it now and think about it now, I f- often feel that like people felt as if they had to like have an answer. There is no answer there's just for me, what was so helpful was just when people were able to be with me, however I was, you know, however unraveled
1: I was, <laughs> and who could just just hang not to bring us to the current situation, but we're in a global pandemic and there's a mm-hmm. lot of grief going on around us. So I think you saying that is actually really helpful for this moment in time when a lot of people don't know how to be there or show up for all those people that are grieving. It's so true. I think about that
0: a lot. That's Yes, there's so much suffering right now and so many levels and types of grief and so many different types of losses, right? Cause so many different dimensions. It's hard. I, I feel, though, the best way and the only way for me that I've ever had any success with is to be present with the grief. It's just moving through it and feeling it and processing it and composting it as a way to get through it. Because all grief lessens with, with time. However, my observation is when, when we are a little more consciously with it, things work out better. You know, things come out in strange ways when we when we repress, right? They sort of pop out in other places in ways that are just can be so much more difficult than even going through the pain of, of grief.
1: So did you learn that from your therapist, from your healthy upbringing, or is that something you had to learn in real time as you were going through it? Maybe a
0: little bit of all of that. I really did make an effort to spend time and seek out other people who'd been through some kind of trauma. And I really learned how to be with myself in that heaviest of things that I could have ever possibly imagined happening and learned how to be with other people and not have it be overwhelmingly scary. And so I do actually feel really grateful for that you know, during this time, what else was I doing? I was cleaning houses. I couldn't really talk to people. So I, I cleaned houses. <laughs> I walked, you know, I developed a, a Zen meditation practice. So it's like kind of picked this small constellation of things, things that I could do, like just sought to be with other people who were also suffering uh, some kind of grief, just be present with each other but i felt a lot of shame for a long time like coming out of it which i did over a period of years and it was really it was literally years it took many years and i felt so broken for so long around that time people weren't speaking as openly about trauma or mental health they're going to a, people didn't talk about going to a therapist
1: wait when was this this was in the 90s
0: yeah I think society is in a much healthier place now around all of this. I'm really heartened by the fact that we're getting more culturally attuned to mental health ups and downs. And just like you said, you know, the pandemic has brought mental health to the fore. And I feel like people are sharing. I'm hearing people speaking about, you know, methods that are helping them. People are talking about EMR and DBT, different types of talk therapy like there's all kinds of therapy modalities out there and and um i'm hearing a lot of people talking about them in different kinds of um podcasts and meetups and here and Mm -hmm. there but out in the public right and across all different kinds of professional communities not just Mm -hmm. you know self-help communities so i I think that's really i think that's healthy we got to get through this together
1: (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I think it's been destigmatized to a degree where we can all sort of talk about it. It's been normalized, so we can talk about it and be kind of honest and not have to be ashamed. And that's what I was gonna ask you: is like, is that what the shame was about? Is just like you thinking you should be okay when you weren't?
0: Yes. You know, I think I probably had a pretty tough edge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, coming out of coming out of those high school, <laughs> college years. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Pretty sure that was true, and you know, it, I just feeling so flattened really took that edge off, and I felt so vulnerable without it. And I felt like you know, in New York, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, it's touchy feely stuff, blah 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 blah. Like, don't want to talk necessarily. Don't didn't want to talk about feelings, and so I felt yeah, the shame was like. Well, I do want to talk about feelings. I need to talk about feelings. I'm just learning how to function again as a re-put together, put back together person. I couldn't pretend that everything was all like calm, cool and collected. There's just no way I could even like create a veneer or a facade of that. So I just felt very exposed all the time and I think that was part of the source of that shame, too.
1: What an intense journey. I feel like in the searching for positives kind of way, you probably learned so many practical and deep and valuable life lessons that have you know, made you a stronger individual. Not tougher, but more resilient. I hate that you people think you can't be tough and sensitive at the same time. Yes, you can. It's just toughness means that I'm able to You know, endure a lot. It doesn't mean I'm not feeling it while I'm enduring it. Yeah, totally. One of my favorite coworkers from my San Francisco
0: days had a daughter who was about nine at the time. She and my friend and I were working together. Her daughter met me and said to her mom, "I like Sarah. She's tough and cuddly."
1: (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. I was like, "Yeah, I think that's kind of what you're speaking about." But to experience being so flattened, as you said, and putting yourself back together, I'm sure you gained wisdom and a perspective that informs your creative career, but also informs just the very way you navigate the world and other people. It does.
0: It really does. And I've been in this mode now for so long. And I'm so grateful for what I did learn along the way. You know, I tell my friends and my family that I love them a lot. <laughs> I do have some sense of today is the day. Like we have now. I don't know about later. You know, like this is it. Like for all intents and purposes, this, this is it. We're, you know, this moment. So I feel that it's a gift to be more grounded in the moment as an orientation to life, which is something that that time really gave me in addition to wanting to just be more emotionally honest with people and express love. It's like that, you know, I feel more love and more joy now and I'm more sort of excited to share it because I've known such sadness and and grief. So it's all kind of like the high corresponds to the low. Are you better able to like cultivate joy? I think I find joy in very simple, simple things. And always to me, connections with people are still the most important thing. I mean, I'd like to say that I never get hooked, you know, by the BS in life of like, you know, it's about just getting the most toys and the status and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Like, but I'm not immune. however i definitely have more of a perspective on people connections human connection being the most important thing authentic human connection and emotion and so i work in business now i just i feel like it's really important to be a full human and not be a business robot
1: so this is making sense then that full honest human connection is one of the reasons you forged a path and designed for social impact?
0: Yes, I think that's exactly right.
1: So can you kind of trace the path for us from, you know, putting yourself back together to working in business now
2: sure. and not being a
1: business robot? <laughs> <laughs> not a business robot. I'm sure there still are a lot of business robots you work with and so you have to almost teach them how to let their circuits Um, (laughs) fray into becoming a real human.
0: Or else they're giving me side eye, I don't know, one or the other. So I I think after I felt strong enough, you know, coming out of those years of years of grief, I went back to school and I, I chose to go west. I went to California College of the Arts and I put together a degree that was digital media, it was printmaking, it was sculpture, textiles. And so when I graduated that, it was 96 and really, you just couldn't walk two feet down the street without stumbling over a tech startup. You know, that industry was just attracting people from every different discipline. And so I fell into that work. And I started as a producer, you know, kind of went back to drawing on that film background. And I started to slowly move into the field of user experience as it was coalescing and developing. And I worked across a bunch of industries and media and healthcare, financial services, education, worked at a lot of startups. And it felt a lot like film, you know, it's like a very ensemble nature of the work when you're like, Hey, we're going to make a product, we're going to put it out into the world. A lot of that work was fun in those early days of the web. And I would loved that things were constantly evolving. And it was very DIY, you know, it really helped to be super curious. And there was always more to learn. But like, even in that rev the next rev of work it was still super male dominated there were very few women leaders the aggressive style of leadership was was the thing you know so it was a struggle in that way and i was kind of a bummer i didn't see very many models but i just kind of kept going i kept going because i was building chops you know and it was like in this take 2 of my career you know i just would find that Every workplace gave me a different perspective. And as I was saying, like going through all those industries was interesting. But about a dozen years into that, I did get pretty burnt out on that venture backed startup scene. And I really wanted to connect with people who were interested in shifting those kind of social, economic, ecological conditions and moving toward greater equity. But I had no earthly idea how to do it. So I began researching people who were doing projects that I thought were interesting. And I found my way to this network of impact investors and foundations and social entrepreneurs who their work was super enlivening to me. So I just started reaching out to people basically
1: and building relationships. And this is fully gutsy from somebody who had a hard time being around people just a few years earlier.
0: You know, I think there was a little bit also of that kind of like, well, what is there to lose? Like, I don't have anything to lose. Like, I just lost the most important thing, like, and I lived, you know, like, this is this is not a big deal. Um, so it gave me a different bar for, I guess, for that too, for my original kind of base level of chutzpah. One of the people that I had crossed paths with made a really strong impression on me was Maria Judice. She was the founder of a design firm. It was called Hot Studio. She and I are about the same age. She grew up in Staten Island. She also loved Rocky Horror. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She uh, was a a pioneer in digital design. And she grew this studio into a real powerhouse in in San Francisco. And I had done a couple of consulting gigs along the way there. And in 2012, I pitched her on this idea of establishing a design practice that was going to be specifically focused on social impact. That studio was already working with a lot of nonprofits. It was already in her DNA to do that kind of work. And she thought it sounded interesting and she was game. She's really gutsy too. She was like, yeah, let's figure it out. The like, the economic models are weird and difficult. We don't really know like how to do it, but let's just, let's try and figure out what we can do. And so we supported a bunch of nonprofits. It was so fun. I loved the culture, the creative culture that she created. It was very supportive, very embracing of risk-taking. We got to work with a lot of nonprofits who were doing product design. We held office hours with social venture accelerators. We mentored the second class of Code for America fellows, networked with groups of networkers, like the PopTech organization, if you know them, and Shareable Magazine, and you know people who were convening communities of people who wanted to do this work. And we would like tag in and connect with them. So it was really action-packed two years. It was like, yay, this is so great. Okay. We're like figuring stuff out and other stuff is really hard. And and then Hot Studio got acquired by Facebook. Oof. Oh, (laughs) I didn't see that coming. Okay. I, I, I didn't either. And Facebook and I were mutually disinterested in each other. So... (laughs) It was really interesting. Like I'd done a guest lecture at the Stanford D School um, and got invited to teach a class like right at the same time. It was like this Facebook thing happened. It was like in one millisecond. I was like, oh, you know, this practice is going to get stopped short. And yet all these other doors opened. A lot of that, it was like an aqua hire. So a lot of the people went to Facebook, not everybody, but a lot, most. But like, I I got invited to teach a class at the Stanford D School. Um, I got invited to teach living systems dynamics at Centro Diseño. It's an art school in Mexico City. It's a very vibrant place. Got invited to write a book chapter about living systems dynamics that I was teaching at Centro and that we were working through at the D School. So like a lot of these great Opportunities happened in very rapid succession. You know, I give a lot of kudos and gratitude to Maria, you know, for being open to that experimentation. Because I think a lot of those great things came from, you know, her support. I love her.
2: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right.
1: I love, too, that it sounds like just as you were getting going on this thing, it could have felt like it got derailed, but it really didn't. You just leapt over to some of these other opportunities that were coming in rapidly and cobbled together more work for yourself. The piecemeal nature of it, did it coalesce at some point?
0: Yeah, like between all of those teaching gigs and project work, I was doing that for about a year. Then a designer friend that I'd known from those hot days, he joined the second cohort of the U.S. Presidential Innovation Fellows. It's a one-year fellowship that President Obama started to bring private sector innovators into the public sector. So my friend and I were catching up after he'd been in that work for a few months, and he was so enthusiastic about it. And he was raving about it. And I just thought, oh, that sounds really interesting. I've never worked in government, don't know anything about that system, but I'm really curious. And so I applied to that program, much to my surprise, got invited to join the third class of fellows. So I quickly Hot transitioned yeah, into this, like, <laughs> now I'm going to learn what work in the federal government is like for in this whole sort of um, civic tech space. That was 2014. Yeah. What a cool
1: thing to suddenly be working for the government and being able to sort of use your social design lens on the civic space. What did that look like? And you were you were with the Department of Veterans, correct? That's
0: right. There were a group of 20 something fellows at that time, and each one was at a different federal agency, or maybe, you know, in our case, actually, at the Department of Veterans Affairs, there were Four of us innovation fellows, it's a huge organization. We were all doing slightly different things. It was a big culture shock to enter the federal government on so many levels and get to understand enough about the way things worked to see where design approaches could be helpful. The fellows program was really good at doing onboarding, though, I think, into um, the culture of government. That would be important. <laughs> it was really important. I think in the work that I was doing My team was really lucky because we got voluntold about from the secretary of the VA, like CEO equivalent, at that time, basically told us where he wanted us to focus efforts. So it was nice to feel like, you know, what we were working on lined up with what his priorities were. And it was nice just to have access
1: to that kind of alignment. From this perspective, from out here, never having worked for government, it seems to me like an organization like that would have been around for long enough that it would be kind of baked in place. Just in that the systems and protocols in place would be hard to change. So how was design able to help? You're right. Change is
0: hard. I think what I've since learned is like, it's hard in every large organization. It's probably (laughs) just hard for people, period. Oh, it's totally hard. Right. But somehow, like, maybe we could forget, like, these organizational cultures are made of people, right? So, yeah, why why would we think it's going to be easy? That kind of environment, having support from senior leadership is critical, but it's insufficient to embed change that's going to last. It's really important to partner with people who are the career Civil servants, you know, it has to be about partnering with people who are going to take the work forward, like after the people who are just there for a short time step out. So you have to operationalize it in a way that fits with like people's incentives, their roles, things that spark their energy, things that they're excited about. And really, like any culture change effort, you're going to find these people who've been just quietly innovating, finding ways to hack the system anyway, you know, kind of just doing their thing quietly. It's like, definitely partner with those people, lift those people wherever and however possible. And that really helps to sort of generate enthusiasm for people who may be a little skeptical but interested. And then there's some people who we used to joke, they just like had the word blocker invisibly written on their forehead. And it's just best to go around them because life is too short and it takes too long. Right. It's just like, go where the momentum already is. You know, how did design end up being, making enduring change? I think some of it was just optimization of digital design efforts you know, embedding modern technology and modern process. So there's the technology angle. And then there's the people in process angle, which is we did a lot of teaching of human centered design and design facilitation and workshopping and visualizing ideas. And so the visualization and sense making that happens when you can facilitate a great in-person experience amongst people who don't maybe necessarily talk to each other in person all that often that was a very effective form of design and then design artifacts can be really important too we did a lot of ethnographic research trying to understand gathering stories from veterans from all branches and eras of service and understanding what their wants and needs were and then packaging up that qualitative data into Those compelling stories that would point to possible design solution spaces.
1: Oh my God, this sounds so great and fascinating.
0: I really loved it. It was very, very hard work because it it felt so important. I mean, veterans were struggling to get access to services to understand the organization is so vast. It's a huge healthcare system, it's a huge benefit system. You can get money for a GI Bill, you can get a home loan, you can get like hundreds of different things, but it was very hard for people to understand what were they eligible for? How did they go through that application process? And then once they started any particular application process, how did they know where they were in that journey? So a lot of it was trying to add some transparency and clarity to processes that were very opaque to people and that engendered distrust. People who work at VA, they were very mission driven, right? They're not there to get rich and famous and government service. They're there because they loved the mission and were dedicated to the mission. So, you know, you have people who want to do the right thing. And yet, like, you know, like you were saying at the beginning, may just feel risk averse or a little more rule bound by nature. Um sometimes there are very real reasons why change can't happen quickly and must be very small and very incremental. Sometimes there's, there are real blockers that are policy blockers. And then sometimes they're just imagined made up blockers of somebody didn't want to do something some way once and then that persisted and to the point where people think it's a, a rule, but it's not. I think there were a lot of people who'd been there a long time who had a very nuanced understanding of the history of decisions that had been taken and programs that had been formed. And I'll say like the year that I came was the second year that An innovation fellow team had done design research in kind of the same way. And like a couple of years before that, there were people in the organization that were really starting to bring that human centered design way of working and those the mindsets and ways of working into the organization. So definitely was not net new, right? We're building, building on ground that had been laid. Um Some foundation, but I mean, in relation to the totality of the three hundred and fifty thousand people that work in that organization, and you know <laughs> a couple hundred people whose like kind of express job was that
1: kind of change, yeah, that's a big mountain to move, it is. So what does your work at IBM like look and feel like and taste like for you?
0: Yeah, working in the federal government was actually a great training ground for IBM. So organizations are about the same size, almost the same age. And IBM is very much in transformation with design playing a major role. So I've been there coming up on four years and as I mentioned at the top, like I'm leading a team that's inside a design program office. So we're a center of competency that supports IBM's network of designers. It's about 2,500 people. We're working on developing and diffusing standards and practices that help IBM create better products and services. So we work really closely in partnership with functional leaders, with teams across the business in themselves in very different aspects of the business. And then also in our services organization, it's complex. It's a lot to navigate. It's all the people stuff. It's all the, how do we operationalize something because you can't make impact on IBM just doing little like curated tiny little projects one at a time. Like you'd be there for 300 years, you know? So you have to figure out like how you could do something that can scale across this large organization so you know i feel like i'm still learning so much about all of that domain organizational change from that design led lens i love it i'd say right now there's a racial equity and design work stream that is one of the things that is most inspiring me it's led by a group of our black designers and they have just been rocking it they released a site last week it's called call to action. There's a field guide. They've done a podcast and they're really looking to give practical steps that designers can take toward, you know, creating cultures of equity. And we're working on it with an IBM. Did you say it's called call to action
1: or there just is a call to action?
0: Oh, there is a call to action. They have a sort of manifesto about racial inequity. So it's called racial equity in design.
1: And and this is available to the public, we can all, Mm -hmm. and we can all learn from this in terms of building those cultures? Yes. And is this something that you're witnessing or that you're actively involved in? I'm actively involved in it. The Black...
0: Designers are leading it. And there's a group of us that were called the second pillar. <laughs> Nigel Prentice, who's he's kind of orchestrating, he's a leader orchestrating the other, the other people in that core group. He he chose the word pillar because he's like, you know, we stand alongside each other. It's not hierarchical. And I'm like, yeah, but you guys are leading totally. He's like, yeah. But you know, there's a group of other designers within the organization who are supporting that group in their efforts. It feels like one of the most important things to me. I mean, I just I want to see design cultures in every organization where people look like the world. It's so critically important and we're so behind the ball, just desperately needed. So I feel really really happy to be a part of it.
1: Well, I 100% agree and I'm happy that you're a part of it too and I'd love to learn more about the sort of nitty-gritty of how something like that or another one of these projects that you've talked about that need to scale across this enormous organization. What I'm getting at is I'd like to know about your creative process and and what that might look like. Like, how do you start to assemble the ideas, the thoughts, the tools, the work, the education, the research that you need in order to start to affect this kind of change and build a plan and get others on board with it? Yeah, that's a huge one.
0: You know, go with momentum, align with partners, find a shared language Shared language is so hugely important. What are we talking about? What words are we using to describe? What we what, And what do we mean by those words? That's really important.
1: So does that happen in, like, organic conversation, where somebody says a word and you're just like, oh, well, what, what do you mean by that? Because when I use that word, I typically mean this, but I think you mean something different. So, Or do you have, like, workshops on language? Like... <laughs> I'm sorry, I've never held a corporate job.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of, of it is developing flexible frameworks and the frameworks themselves are a, a visual conceptual model that shows the relationship of the parts of this system of change to one another and names them explicitly and specifically. So for example, when the IBM design, uh, one of the first things IBM design office did was to scale what they call enterprise design thinking. So they looked at the hundreds of methods of design thinking that are out there in the world, picked a small handful that felt like they would be very appropriate for helping teams understand customer needs, like put the customer first, make, learn, iterate. They called that list that group of exercises, they taught that group of exercises. They packaged it up, you know, they created a little badging system that had multiple levels of, you know, like I'm a beginner, I'm intermediate, you know, those weren't the words, but beginner, intermediate, advanced, and they had a badging system so that you could do asynchronous learning. Like there were a lot of those kinds of parts and pieces so that the work had a model, that was simple enough understandable enough and then kind of diffused through that sort of mechanism that's one example
1: okay that was really helpful thank you for for spelling that out for me another follow-up question to your creative process is in the beginning you said that you advocate for people in the environment so there's clearly a sustainability angle in your values how does that factor in
0: I often think of this thought from Buckminster Fuller. This is what I consider like the best design brief ever written. It's that our challenge is to make the world work for 100% of humanity in the shortest possible time through spontaneous cooperation without ecological offense or the disadvantage of anyone. Pretty intense, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It kind of says it all. It does. (laughs) So I hold that in my mind's eye, you know, as this, yes, it's the people systems. And as people, we live within a biosphere. We're on a planet. Let's look through that lens as well. And let's like understand our power structure, our use of resources, our resiliency, how much are we regenerating, designing in ways that regenerate. A physical environment and or a social system? Or are we not doing that? Are we perpetuating structures of inequity, or designing inequitable structures through not considering deeply enough?
1: That sounds to me like you're constantly learning, but like that all sounds imp- not to be a pessimist, but it sounds almost impossible. So how do you weigh the lesser of s- certain evils, or still guide the whole project towards the greater good, but having to, you know, work with some trade-offs? I actually think it is possible to do it. Oh, good.
0: I I mean, we could, these are choices, you know, we could do this, but will we, and how can we, and what are the things we need to learn in order to do it? Yeah. I said, I'm learning because I feel like I'm learning all the time from people uh, who are cutting across discipline streams to put together programs to help people see systems of power and systems of inequity better, how to understand Mm -hmm. them, understand how we perpetuate them so that we can see how to do better. And it's just, I think of it as always a work
1: in progress. I see now how being in the present moment really helps you do that. I don't know why. I just got this vision of you being at the energetic center of a mushroom cloud and like directing all of the energy and the, in the mushroom cloud, not being a nuclear explosion, but being this expansion of the universe in the, towards the greater good. And you sort of funneling in that really present moment, energetic way, funneling all that you're learning and all of the energy and all of the social interaction in your life toward that
0: Yeah, that's the practice. Well, thank you for doing that.
1: And thank you for breaking it down in a digestible way so that I think a lot of us can also wrap our heads around how we can believe that that's also possible and then also get clearer on the ways that we can move in that direction. This phrase, like move at the speed of trust,
0: uh, it should be attributed and forgive me because I'm don't know who said it in my mind right now. I can't think of who it is, but I, I think it's just my experience has been that that's true, that that is the way forward. And that is what works is to move at the speed of trust. That makes so much sense. Doesn't it? And you could just it's so relatable, right? I mean, we could just relate it to our own, like every interaction, right? Things don't move forward if there's no trust. Like we couldn't be having this conversation if we weren't in a trust flow with each other. It just wouldn't go anywhere. Useful. So it's like it goes, it fractals out. This is how we do it. One to one connecting and then until we get to many to many.
1: That's it. That's the way forward. (laughs) I'm surprisingly moved here at the end of this interview. And I've just, I'm so grateful that you shared so much of your intellect, but also so much of your humanity with me. This has been really wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been great to talk with you. Thank you for listening. To see images and learn more about Sarah and her work, read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app, or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you would, please do us a favor and rate and review. It really does help us out. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media, with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Ilana Nevins and Inushka Stefan, and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk.